Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the hidden havens for Britain's wildlife with Stephen Moss and his new book, the Accidental Countryside. Stephen Moss is a lifelong naturalist, a broadcaster and author. In a distinguished career at the BBC Natural History Unit, his credits included the BAFTA award-winning Springwatch, Birds Britannia and The Nature of Britain. His books include The Robin, Mrs Moreau's Warbler, Wild Hares and Hummingbirds and Wild Kingdom. He is Senior Lecturer in Nature and Travel Writing at Bath Spa University. Originally from London, he lives with his family on the Somerset Levels, where he is President of the Somerset Wildlife Trust. And Stephen's latest book, The Accidental Countryside, Hidden Havens for Britain's Wildlife, we're going to talk about today. Stephen, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, very nice to, to talk to you, Neil. So, I guess first of all, we should talk about what you mean by the accidental countryside. Yeah, it's a slightly odd title. I suppose it's an echo of, uh, as I say in the book, of Richard Mabey's wonderful book from the early 70s, The Unofficial Countryside. And in those days, Richard Mabey, the sort of guru of modern nature writers, looked at the sort of messy bits in towns and cities, you know, the bits that when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, we used to play on bits of what you call wasteland nowadays. Most of them actually, funnily enough, have gone in places like London because they've all been built on. I broaden that definition out. And my definition of the accidental countryside is any place, any location, any area of land that was created for our use, for humans to use, and wildlife has taken advantage of it and moved in. So that includes things like churchyards and ancient abbeys and ruins. It includes railway lines, either used or disused. It includes roadside verges, golf courses, military sites, canal banks, old peat diggings, old gravel pits. What it doesn't include is farmland and gardens, because obviously they are created for our use, but they're slightly different. So it's really what a lot of writers in the past have called the edge lands, these sort of messy bits that we, we tend to slightly ignore or forget uh, about, often hidden, often not particularly well protected, and often really good for wildlife. 
Yeah, edgelands is is a term that's become sort of familiar as well as for the sort of new nature writing, sort of psychogeographers and stuff. There's been a lot of that around recently. And you you mentioned Richard Maybe, but you also talk about some other writers and books. So I just wanted to talk about some other people that might have been an influence on on your work here. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Kenneth Allsop is the main one. I mean, the book is dedicated to three men one of whom I've had the privilege to know, Chris Baines, who's a good friend of mine. One I've come across and met, Richard Maybe, and obviously admire hugely as a writer. And the other one, Kenneth Allsop, who I used to see on telly in the late 60s and 70s, um, until his untimely death in, I think, 1972 or three. And Kenneth Allsop was an amazing man. He was a broadcaster. He was very well known. Uh, Our parents and grandparents' generation would know the name very easily. And he was a news broadcaster, but he did documentaries and he wrote books and he wrote about nature. And he coined a wonderful phrase about the area I grew up in on the edge of London. And he called it that messy limbo that is neither town nor country. And I've always loved that. I've always loved the fact that these funny little places that are suburban, which is a bit of an insult in Britain, isn't it? Suburbia. Uh, That's where I grew up. But these places are on the edge of all sorts of built up areas in Britain. And they are, they're places that people take for granted. Um, In my case, it was gravel pits. It's where I cut my teeth as a young bird watcher in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, And it was our adventure playground. And and it still is actually that I went back a couple of years ago, and it's still there where where I grew up. And, and, you know, for me, these these places are very important. But Kenneth Allsop and Richard Maybe were the the first two people really to recognise the importance of these places at a time where the countryside was, as it still is, is seen as this sort of green haven of, you know, precious place for wildlife, whereas actually, really since the war, that hasn't been true. And Allsop was probably the first person to realise that. And so you start the book off with um, an explanation of how that amazing animal, the uh, peregrine falcon, has, has adapted to the city. Let's talk about that first of all. Yeah, it's a funny one because when I wrote it, I wanted to start with the peregrine. It's a very spectacular animal. It's the fastest living creature on the planet. Um, It's a pretty extraordinary bird. And part of me realised afterwards that, in fact, most of the sites in the book are not urban in that sense. They tend to be suburban or, or, or even stretching outside the town and city, like railway lines to roadside verges. Whereas the peregrines on the Tate Modern and the Shard and the Barbican are, by definition, an urban creature. But what I love about them is they've adapted scientists call the analogue habitat of a skyscraper. If you're a peregrine, you need a high plate to nest and you need it to be high so that you can look down and then attack any bird that happens to be there. When I was young, I used to think peregrines were specialist feeders because they hunt birds. But of course, there's a lot of different birds, and peregrines can hunt anything from a goldcrest to a duck and do. And so peregrines have moved lock, stock and barrel into London. I think there are 25 nesting pairs there now. When I grew up, there were none. You know, it was an incredibly rare bird. I didn't see one until I was in my 20s. And, you know, this is a, a bird that, All it needs is this place to be. It doesn't care if that place was made by human beings or not. And I think what, for me, that sums up is what all wildlife does. Wildflowers don't care if it's a roadside verge or a traditional hay meadow, as long as it's not pumped with chemicals. You know, that's that's why wildflowers will live in a certain place, why butterflies will live in a certain place, or birds. You know, there has to be food, shelter. They don't see the countryside in the way we do. They just see where they can go. 
Well, it would be a um, easy to think that uh, you know a peregrine falcon nesting on the Tate Modern is is a modern phenomenon. So let's let's go right back to an ancient site and talk about let's talk yeah, about Musa in the, in the Shetlands and your experiences seeing storm petrels there. Yeah, I mean, I went up there first with Bill Oddy um, about twenty over twenty years ago. We went up to make a program there, and we we got the ferry across at night. And I've been there several times since, and it is an extraordinary thing because, as Bill said, it looks like an Iron Age cooling tower. It's not as big as I remember it. When I went back again a few years ago, it's only about 50 feet high, and I had this image that it was like, you know, 200 feet. But it's it's a sort of cooling tower shape ruin, but pretty well preserved. And the storm petrels, our tiniest seabird, barely bigger than a house martin and very similar in appearance, fly in at night to avoid being eaten by the gulls, and they nest, they wriggle inside the stones, and they nest inside there and they make the most extraordinary sound which um, a now sadly departed Shetland naturalist called Bobby Tullock said they sounded like fairies being sick which is just such a brilliant description they do I, I'm going to try to impersonate them um, they sort of go and you hear this coming out of the rock as dusk falls and then they come back and you see them coming in and what I love is again they don't care that this is man-made you know and has been abandoned for 2,000 years that's where they live and, and to me they sort of sum up i nearly started the book with them and i start chapter one with them uh, but i think i felt the peregrine was more spectacular but it's an amazing experience to go there obviously there's been many invasions of the british isles over the years you know the romans the anglo-saxons the normans and obviously we know a lot of the ways in which they affected the country you know socially and politically but um let's talk about what impact they had on wildlife well, one of the key things was the Saxons actually built churches. The Saxons effectively created the modern English village. And although very few villages have a Saxon church, a lot of, or even a Norman church, a lot of the churches in English villages, including one I live, are almost certainly built on a site that did have a Saxon or Norman church. They tend to be the highest point in the village, in, particularly in Somerset, where it floods. And again, you know, I wrote, I wanted to give a historical survey to the book. I wanted to give that element to the book. And of course, it's quite hard because historically at the time people didn't write down what the wildlife was but what we know is lichens for example on saxon or norman churches have been there those colonies have been there probably since the church was built or soon afterwards and so lichens you know for me they give that wonderful continuity but all sorts of other things nest in churches and churchyards and one of the reasons of course that all the sites in the book are so good for wildlife it's very simple they're not ploughed they're not sprayed with chemicals they're not sown with a monocultural crop they they're often not very disturbed people you know of course churchyards have people in them but not all the time and so wildlife gets on there because there's plenty of food it usually comes down to food with wildlife but you know flowers can bloom they're not cut down all the time in a churchyard they're not you know the i mean some churchyards of course are mown with an inch of their life but mostly they're not mostly you know there is a sort of useful messiness if you like which is, i use this word messy a lot these places where wildlife is are often quite messy that's why there's wildlife there that's what creates a good habitat I'd always assumed, I mean, I guess without thinking about it that much, that lichen is something that was just everywhere. It's everywhere where the air is clean, is a very good indicator of air pollution. It's often, you know, more lichens and more species and more vigorous lichens are in the west of England and west of Britain, Wales and Scotland, partly because, of course, 
that's where it's damper. But but where you don't find lichens, and it's very interesting, and I note this in the book, that if you go to a village church, it's covered in lichens. Then you move out and you reach housing estates, which are built obviously much more recently. And there's, you know, there might be some walls and rockeries with a few lichens. And then you go into the wider countryside outside the village, the farmed countryside, and there are no lichens. And lichens are a very good indicator of the health of the environment. Why aren't they there? Because the countryside is not some rural ideal. It is a food factory. And in many ways, part of it should be a food factory because we all need to eat. I'm always very careful in my books and my talks. I do not criticise farmers. Farmers have a job to do. They, by and large, do it very well without an awful lot of praise or help from us, apart from the fact we subsidise them, but, uh, but that's all to do with cheap food. And so what we end up in is farmers have to, either because they're big firms effectively and they make a big profit, or they're small farmers and they don't make much money, so they have to farm intensively. That's how the system works, because of the need for cheap food. And because of that, the farmed countryside is, not exclusively, but in many cases, pretty hopeless for wildlife. And what I find fascinating, and what I suppose the overall message of this book is, is if we had a healthy countryside that was producing good quality food, not as intensively as we do now, and we ate more sensibly and we bought more sensibly and supermarkets didn't make such a big profit and farmers made a decent living, my book would be irrelevant. No one would be interested in all these other places. No one would say, oh, gosh, that roadside verge in Dorset is fantastic for wildflowers, because the whole of the countryside would be fantastic for wildflowers. You know, it's actually a tragedy that I have to write a book about places that are marginal, are edgelands, are places that wildlife has found a space because it's had to, because it ain't going to find any room in the wider countryside. And that's the sort of sad truth of the book, really. You know, that although I'm really pleased that these places exist, and I love visiting them, and, and some of them I, I've you know, think of some of the most special places wildlife I've ever been in Britain. Frankly, we shouldn't need to big them up because the whole of the countryside should have wildlife in. And we're going to come back to those Dorset hedgerows you just alluded yes. to a little later on. But I want to talk about the the railways, first of all, both the, you know, the coming of the railways and the going of the railways left behind or created, obviously like railway sidings. What I was fascinated to learn from this book is, is obviously, you know, we're familiar with railway journeys and see plants growing on the side, wildflowers growing on the sides of the railways. But how some species were able to use these newly cut railways to move around the country for a plan incredibly fast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because, because plants, not all plants, but a lot of plants shed very light airy seeds and the classic the famous story is the oxford ragwort which i hint at in the book i'd actually written about it in a previous book so i didn't want to cover it in detail again but the oxford ragwort is the classic story of the accidental countryside it's a plant found only on the slopes of etna in sicily it's brought back to the oxford botanic garden in the 18th century it's cultivated as this very rare plant and one day a few seeds uh, waft out of the garden as they do in the wind of this walled garden and normally that will be it but the railway had just opened down the road. This is the 18, I think the 1830s or 40s. And the seeds land on the railway line and they grow because the clinker by the railway line is rather like volcanic soil. It's very poor. And so they grow very well there. And then, of course, the trains come along and whisk the seeds up and they literally whisk them along 
a couple of miles every few days. And in the end, the Oxford ragwort's found over much of Britain now because of that. It's quite a common plant. And that's not the only example of that. There's lots. Because, of course, what railways give you is a linear corridor up and down which wildlife can go. You mentioned then after the railways, as you know, Britain's rail system was massively cut, devastated, really, in the early 60s. And I tell that story in the book. And a lot of the old railway lines, the ones that survived, some of them were just built on. But many of them are now what they call railway paths. And people commute on them, they cycle, they go jogging, they go for walks. And these create linear nature reserves through cities. Where I used to live in London, the Parkland Walk in Harringay, one of the most built up, intensely populated areas of Britain, has this wonderful long corridor running five or six miles through the centre of that part of London. And that allows wildlife to move up and down. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Stephen Moss, and we're talking about his latest book, The Accidental Countryside. And Stephen, I said we were going to come to roads, and I want to talk about a couple of examples of the sort of cultivation of the the verges of roads, both good and bad. And as I said, we were going to talk about Dorset. So what are they doing right there? Well, in Dorset County Council are really visionary, and that's not a phrase you hear much about rural councils in Britain, but they have certain people in them, and presumably the council leaders and the councillors, and hats off to them, they decided not to, firstly, not to mow roadside verges, but secondly, to be proactive and scrape the verges off and plant a range of native wildflowers, the sort of wildflowers that would have been commonplace in the countryside in our grandparents' and great-grandparents' day before the Second World War. Uh, We've lost 97% of our hay meadows 
so sort of flowers you know classic meadow plants and that attracts butterflies and it looks lovely and people stuck in traffic jams around the town of Blandford Forum can sit there and look at the the flowers and that probably makes them feel better but what's really great is the council saved over £90,000 a year doing this so they've saved the ratepayers money it looks better it's better for wildlife and it doesn't do any harm and it's just you know a wonderful example of how working with nature rather than against it rather than mowing them every week or every fortnight which they were doing before they mow them i think once or twice every summer you know so it saves money it looks better and it's good for wildlife and that's you know that's a great example a bad example then is what happened at bluebell hill tell us that story in kent yeah well that was again it was a good example to start with because again the kent wildlife trust worked with the highways agency and kent county council and they created again created it takes a bit of work costs a bit of money but it you know it saves money in the end they created this wonderful roadside verge of orchids and i think there were seventeen thousand individual orchids would come into bloom each spring and then one day they came past to have a look and they saw that it had been completely destroyed and what had happened is the contractors subcontractors employed by the council had gone along they'd not been briefed properly they'd not been told what to do they were meant to be improving the drainage by digging a couple of holes which would have destroyed a few orchids but been fine instead of which they just raised the whole thing they just put their diggers in and just went along and scraped the whole of the topsoil off and this was in winter so there were no orchids there but of course it destroyed all the orchids that would have come up the next year and you know to be fair on kent county council they held their hand up they are normally very good at this sort of thing they messed up it was a classic miscommunication it was one of those stupid accidents that happen and hopefully what will come of that is a better way of working but of course you can't you can't legislate for the fact that people are idiots sometimes and, and the guys who did it hadn't thought what they were doing, misunderstood their instructions, didn't care and just did it. So, you know, it's one of those things. But let's hope it doesn't happen again because those orchids were really valuable. You mentioned earlier that a lot of the messy sites, as you described them, in London have subsequently gone, obviously, because land is incredibly expensive and valuable. But one of those would have been, for, for a long time, bomb sites from the from the Second World War. And, and in the book, you tell a story again about um, a species of plant that was able to sort of get a hold on the bomb sites. But a, a story I wasn't aware of, which I'd like you to tell, is that of the Black Red Stars. Yeah, it's a lovely story. I'm just too young. I'm 60 next month, God help me. But um, I'm just too young to remember bomb sites. I didn't play them. I didn't live in London. I lived on the edge. But my generation don't remember bomb sites. But you don't have to be much older. People in their late 60s and 70s, of course, remember playing on them. And they were like, again, they were sort of an adventure playground. And the two things, as you say, the Rose Bay Willow Herb, which is that lovely purple plant we see on the edge of roads all around Britain now, very rare plant before the Second World War, and now is everywhere again because it colonises newly disturbed land, which, of course, bomb sites were. And the Black Red Star is a great story. I see Black Red Stars when I go to the continent. If I go to France or Spain, if you go to any kind of village, particularly in the hills, Black Red Stars are like the robin there. They sort of hop around the edge of villages. You see them. They're quite a little perky little bird there. Black with a red tail. Red Star means red tail. And they're very robin-like, so they're very, very pretty little bird. And they weren't known in Britain at all until about the 1920s. They've been Perhaps one or two rare birds turning up, you know. 
And then what happened, just before the war, they started to get a toehold and a few pairs bred, I think, where they built the Wembley Stadium. They like building sites. They're very strange bird. They, again, it's like the peregrine. It's an analog habitat. It's a habitat that resembles the rocky areas they breed on the continent, but it's actually artificial. It's a building site. So it's, you know, rubble and, and piles of stuff. And what happened after the war, because of the bomb sites, that, that was exactly the right habitat and they colonized and there were several hundred pairs in London and they did really well. And then since then, after the bomb sites were built on places like the Millennium Dome, the O2 when it was being built, that had Brett Resdarts on, you know, over much of London and even up as far as Birmingham and a couple of few other cities. But they're really declining now. They're really down in numbers because those places have now been built on and what Black Resdarts don't want is a building they want the building site they want the rubble because that attracts insects and there's little nooks and crannies and they can nest there and other birds don't take advantage of that and they do so it's an interesting story and i went i was up with my friend and colleague brett westwood in stourbridge a while ago and we went out for a walk and in the town there we kept coming across little bits of sort of wasteland waste ground and i said to brett you know you don't see these in london anymore They've all gone. And he said, yeah, here, because, you know, the land isn't as valuable as you say, you've still got that. But, you know, so I think the Black Red Star is now on the on the decline. I think there are fewer than 100 pairs left in Britain now, which is a pity because it's a really lovely little bird. Well, that sort of site, that sort of building site, industrial wasteland, I'm sort of thinking to get us to to a discussion of Lodge Hill, basically, and the nightingales on the on the Hoo Peninsula. But the idea of the brownfield site, which is something that you know people will have started to hear about because of the you know the the need for housing, and this being like you know again around the sort of you know the southeast valuable land that was formerly used for we think formerly used for industry that seems ideal for housing but you talk about in the book how you know just the very concept of the of the brownfield site is actually often way more complicated than we yeah I, I think it's deeply flawed i mean i absolutely agree that there are a lot of in post-industrial sites which should be should and could and should be used for housing we need homes you know we need to build homes i mean no question about this and so for example if an old petrol station in a town closes down because you know they don't need one anymore and you can build houses on it particularly if there's the infrastructure of a town or city that's great you know so there are lots of industrial sites that are hopeless for wildlife or pretty marginal for wildlife but an example that you will know i think um is Cambywick in essex and that's a very strange place Cambywick on Camby island very very deprived area socially and economically and in the early 70s they planned an oil refinery there because it's on the edge of the the Thames and, you know, you could build, bring oil tankers in. And then, of course, the oil crisis happened and the demand fell hugely for oil after that when we had the three-day week and depression. And this refinery, although they built the sort of platforms, sort of big concrete circles, if you like, on the ground, they never put the tanks in. And this is in the 70s. And astonishingly, for 30 or more years, nothing happened to this site because land prices were not high there, and because it's not a very prosperous area, no one wanted to build on it. And then in the early 2000s, I think it was, someone came along and said, yeah, we want to build on it now. And the local conservationist realised that it's a really good site for insects. It's probably the second best site for invertebrates in the UK after Dungeness, in terms of both range of species and rare species. And it was saved, and it was opened as Britain's first brownfield nature reserve. Now, to me, that's not a brownfield site. The fact it used to, because the, the definition is important, because a brownfield site can be built on without planning permission or with 
less planning permission, whereas a greenfield site, i.e. an old wheat field or a, a paddock where horses go, you can't build on it. Generally, those sites are never allowed to be built on, or almost never, unless there's been some kind of building there before, whereas these industrial sites, post-industrial sites, are considered fair game. And then in Kent, Lodge Hill that you mentioned, I mean, Lodge Hill is an extraordinary place that was a military site. It was a military training site for many years, and it got run down in the 60s and 70s, and, and, and the buildings collapsed and crumbled, and scrub arrived and overgrown. And then when they came to build 5,000 homes on it, they did a survey the same year for nightingales, and someone found that there were over 100 pairs of nightingales there, which was more than any other site in the whole of Britain. And luckily, it was saved. And that's, you know, that's an extraordinary story, again, of, of how we need to be careful how we define things. Just one more question, then, one more story before we finish. And there's absolutely loads in this book that we, we haven't got to yet. There's, there's loads more to tell. But I just wanted to talk about um, back to sort of suburban London and why an unassuming little corner, Gunnersby Triangle, was so revolutionary. Yeah, Gunnersby Triangle is a great story. It is a triangle. It's very small. I can't remember how many acres it is, but a handful. And it's in Acton, uh, on the edge of Ealing and Acton. And you come out of the tube station, you walk across the road, and you walk into the through this little gate. And you suddenly find yourself in what feels like a sort of little overgrown urban sort of woodland park, if you like. If, you know, that, that would be how I'd describe it. What happened was about, oh gosh, was it back in the 80s, I think it was, it was decided that they were going to build on this triangle. It's a triangle between one existing railway line and two disused ones. So that's why it's there. It was British Rail land. And they said, let's develop it. And no one will mind. And the local people said, but we actually quite like it because we go there. And although it's small, it's like our little park, you know, and we like walking the dog and we like taking the kids. And we just like our sort of feeling of nature. And they asked to put together a proposal as to why they should save it. And in those days, you could only save a place if it had a what they call, a, you know, a, a rare species, basically. in it. it could be a plant, it could be a bird, it could be a mammal, it could be a butterfly. But it had to be something that was notifiably rare. And of course, Gunnersby Triangle didn't have anything rare on it. It had foxes and it had sparrows and, you know, hedgehogs and a few plants and, you know, robins and blackbirds and whatever. So the local people put together a different case and they made a report. They basically said, look, with the London Wildlife Trust helping them, which was a new organisation, they said, look, we want this as a place for human benefit. It's a natural place that we get benefit from. We don't care if there's nothing rare there. And amazingly, it went to court and a judgment was pronounced. And the judge, who must have been a very far-sighted man, said, I agree completely with the local people. This is a local amenity, and we must preserve it for its common wildlife. Now, that was an absolute game changer, because it meant that all, firstly, legally, all around the country, places like that could make the same argument. They didn't have to have a rare bird nesting there. And it also meant that we began to understand that these places are valuable for people as well as wildlife. And all the places I've mentioned, Canby Wick and the roadside verges and the old railway paths, because many of them are near where people live and because they're not official nature reserves, most of them, people go there as a matter of course and they get a great sense of well-being from these places. They don't think of themselves as going out in nature. These are not bird watchers. These are not, uh, you know, botanists. These are just normal people who want to connect with the natural world and find that walking to work, you know, through a churchyard or an old cemetery 
or past an old gravel pit or along you know one of these old railway lines brings them that sense of connection with nature and so Gunnersby Triangle is the sort of original place that started all that off and I I went there and it's a real I'd heard about it for years I'd never been I lived in London I lived quite near it for many years and I'd never been there and I went last year and it was a real really special experience because it is so ordinary it's not you know it's tiny but to local people, it's not ordinary because it's their place. And that, that's what matters about these places. So I've been talking to Stephen Moss. We've been talking about his new book, The Accidental Countryside, Hidden Havens for Britain's Wildlife, which is out now in the UK from Guardian and Faber Books. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. An absolute pleasure, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.